Good evening and welcome to this CNBC special. Taking stock, I'm Frank Holland. Jim Cramer has the night off. Well, the major averages, they were all over the map today as Wall Street tries to make sense of a slightly hotter than expected inflation print. After an early pop, stocks turning sharply negative in the late morning with the Nasdaq falling more than 1% at its lows. But indexes pair those losses after Philly Fed President Patrick Harker suggested rate hikes are close to an end. The Nasdaq ending the day well in the green, as you can see right here. Yields also moving higher with this six-month T-bill closing above 5%. That's its highest level since 2007. And tonight, your post-CPI playbook. Peter Bookvar joins us. He's breaking down how he's approaching today's key inflation data, plus checking into Airbnb after earnings. The stock's surging after the close. We're breaking down the numbers and a crypto, crypto confidence boost. Ken Griffin Citadel taking a stake in crypto bank Silvergate, what it could mean for the digital currency. But first, let's start with the market. CNBC's own Mike Santoli here to break down today's moves. And Mike, I got to ask you, after that hotter than expected CPI print, surprised to see the Nasdaq as the outperformer. Uh, yes and no, Frank. Uh, yeah, on paper, higher bond yields, uh, hotter inflation, slightly warmer than expected at least, usually would not be a recipe for those big growth stocks to outperform. But uh, there's some nuance here. There were more stocks on the Nasdaq that were down today than up. Uh, and, you know, really, uh, it was mostly NVIDIA and Tesla that carried the Nasdaq to a slightly positive close. So I don't see it as really being uh, opposing messages right there. And also in general, uh, look, the Nasdaq was down 30 percent peak to trough last year. That swept away a lot of the valuation stuff. That, that definitely uh, kind of level set the NASDAQ for uh, the general level of, of bond yields right now. So I don't think that it's, uh, it's the old days of just assuming that higher yields mean lower NASDAQ each day. All right. A lot to watch here. Mike, thank you very much. Mike Santoli live from the New York Stock Exchange. Let's dig into the hotter than expected CPI report right now. Joining us, Peter Bookbar, CIO at Bleakley Advisory Group. And of course, as CNBC contributor, Peter, thank you so much for being here, especially in Thanks, person. Thanks, Frank. Great to be here. So first, let's talk about your take on this slightly hotter than expected CPI print. How do you think this moves the markets beyond today for the next couple of weeks until we have the next Fed meeting and Fed decision? Well, starting with payroll Friday a few Fridays ago, leading into today, it's clear that the rise in short-term interest rates uh, is now well entrenched and that the, the bond market, with the help of that, those data points, and also a lot of Fed speak uh, are now telling us, reminding us, and pounding us in the head that the Fed funds rate is going to end up north of 5%. In addition to that, the Fed is not going to be cutting through the rest of the year, according to the message and where the Fed funds rate is trading now. So I think it's most important for us to realize that this is a different rate environment that we're in. 16-year mm-hmm. highs in short-term interest rates after 15 years of basically zero is, is a, a, an environment that we, I think it's going to take time to acclimate to. You know, let's keep going with that thread for a second. So you're one of the people that mentioned to me that the six-year T-bills at a 16-year high going all the way back to 2007, we're talking great recession territory. Um, what does that say about investor sentiment when it comes to the Fed? Well, the Fed, the, the market has been fading the Fed, fading a lot of their rhetoric and not, not believing that the Fed was going to take the Fed funds right north of five. And not only that, the market did not believe that the Fed would actually be disciplined enough to keep them elevated for a while. And I think the, the market has shifted uh, since that payroll Friday, where the two-year yield has gone from 409 to about four, almost 465, uh, essentially tightening 50 basis right. points. So that has been the shift. The stock market, if you looked at it the day before the payroll number and you looked at it today, you would think that there was really no move in interest rates. But, of course, there has been a substantial one. 
Right. Let's talk about where the Fed's uh, Fed funds future is. A little alliteration there. Where is it at right now? Where was it at the beginning of the year? And how does that influence what sectors you're bullish and bearish on? Well, just a couple of weeks ago, the, the, they were pricing in a terminal rate of, call it 490. So the market believing that the Fed was going to raise only one more time to four and three quarters, five. But over the past couple of weeks and as of today's close, the August 2023 terminal rate is now just above five and a quarter. So we're going to have two more rate hikes. And importantly, again, to repeat myself, the market has taken out the possibility of Fed cuts in the back half of the year. All right. So there's more action going on than just the CPI report here in the United States. You're also very bullish on China reopening. You have some picks for us that are tied to that reopening. We're talking about 17 percent of the world's population that was essentially locked up for three years. So I think unleashing that, particularly particularly the Chinese consumer, I think there's a lot of I want to get my life back. I want to make up for lost time. So the Macau casino stocks, online travel uh, company trip.com. Uh, and just all of Asia, the Japanese stock market, is going to benefit from reopening of China. So I think that people are underestimating what I believe will be a positive economic impact, but that will mostly be felt over there and less so in the U.S. So you're mentioning it will be mostly felt over there in, in the Asia-Pacific region, but the reopening of China, a full reopening especially, also has a big impact on oil prices. So if you're very bullish on the China's reopening, does that mean you also see a big spike in oil prices going forward? I do. So we're bullish on, on energy stocks uh, on that exact thesis and that in 2022, there was a decline in the Chinese uh, demand for or usage of crude oil for the first time since 1990. In 2023, China's demand for crude, crude oil will go to a record high, as will overall demand, I think, exceeding the 2019 peak. So I think that's going to lead to in the back half of the year as China fully reopens, lead to uh, much higher uh, energy prices. So if you're seeing record oil demand out of China, does that mean you're also very bullish on the industrial sector? So many of our industrials, even here in the United States, they get a big portion of their business overseas, specifically in Asia and China. Those that do will benefit from that with the offset of slowdown in the U.S. and very mediocre growth in Europe, but parts of Europe that will benefit from that, that China reopening. So, yes, they, they've reflected a lot of that optimism, but I think you can play more directly in Asia. All right, Peter, stick around. We want to bring in one more macro voice. That's Mona Mahajan, senior investment strategist at Edward Jones. Mona, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks, Frank. Good to be here. So I want to ask you the same question I started off asking Peter. Um, how do you see today's slightly hotter than expected CPI print impacting the markets as we uh, wait for the next Fed meeting and the next Fed rate decision? Yeah, you know, it was an interesting reaction from both the equity and bond space. I think the equity markets tended to focus on the trend of CPI. So this is now the seventh month in a row that headline CPI has fallen uh, back from back when it peaked in June of 2022. Um, and so equities were actually quite benign or sanguine when they saw a print that was perhaps slightly above consensus but still, the trend has been their friend in the equity market. And keep in mind, this is a backdrop where not only inflation has been coming down, but we are seeing, of course, a very resilient labor market. And to your discussion earlier, China and Europe have been showing resilience as well. So coming into 2023, a much better backdrop overall for, for equities and risk takers broadly. But on the other hand, when you look at the bond space, um, the reaction there was quite interesting as well. You know, yields across the board, including the two-year and the 10-year, moved higher. Um, and in fact, the two-year is now at a high for the year. And that yield curve continues to remain pretty inverted here. So 
usually a reliable signal of a, a, a pending downturn ahead. Um, and also, of course, as you and Peter were talking about, the Fed funds futures. And if you look at the CME FedWatch tool, in fact, there is now a an increasing probability of not only two more rate hikes, but potentially that third one in June as well. So certainly before today and after today, um, the potential for Fed rate hikes, at least that are being priced in by the market, has increased as well. So we're looking at higher, potentially higher for longer, um, but still an equity environment that uh, is still seeing the silver lining. Okay, so I mean, I know that inverted yield curve is supposed to be a potential recession indicator, but there's something that's not going higher. That's the unemployment rate. With such low unemployment, um, are, are, does that just completely refute any sense that we're heading for a very big economic downturn with, you know, record low unemployment? Yeah, you know, the unemployment rate at 3.4%, multi-decade lows, um, that is not screaming an imminent recession. Now, some of the other indicators you can look to, and in fact, uh, the retail sales number tomorrow will be quite interesting, um, but we are seeing softness in forward indicators, uh, leading indicators, and of course, the ISM, not only in manufacturing, but now in services, is starting to roll over. So there are signals in the economy that we could be facing a softening ahead, but I think our core view is that because we are starting from this position of strength, um, you know, we don't see a potential for any sort of deeper, prolonged recessionary environment. In fact, okay. an economic downturn may look more like a slowdown to below potential growth instead of your technical, you know, two back-to-back -back quarters of GDP growth. What I will, negative GDP growth. What I will um, mention, though, earnings, if you look at market forecasts for earnings for 2023, what we are seeing is not only Q4s of 2022 is looking at negative 5%, we're now looking at Q1 and Q2 at negative 5% and negative 3% respectively. So that's three back-to-back -back negative earnings growth quarters. That is pointing to uh, at least an earnings slowdown that could be uh, somewhat related to the GDP growth as well. Mona, this is Peter. A quick question. Do you, do you think the stock market can withstand this level of interest rates as the year progresses? It's a great question. You know, we are in an environment that is completely different than the 10 years post the financial crisis where the Fed brought rates to the zero bound. And in fact, in that environment, uh, growth outperformed value, as we know, for almost that entire 10 year period. When you look at you know, where your winners and losers will be in this environment where uh, not only are interest rates elevated, but probably will stay elevated for some time. We think what's important for investors to understand is that there is probably going to be a balance in leadership. Um, yes, we are seeing growth and technology rebound uh, for this first quarter, but more, you know, longer term, we think uh, diversified leadership between value and growth sectors makes a lot of sense. Um, but to your point, we do think an inflection point will come when not only the Fed pauses their interest rate hiking cycle, but of course, when they start thinking about moving it lower, uh, we think that will set up nicely for a market rebound. And that could happen, of course, not only if uh, not only because growth is slowing, but also potentially because inflation has come down and they don't need to be at such a highly restrictive level. So, Mario, hey, no, one question I want to ask you about is just the investor appetite for risk. So far this year, we've seen a big appetite for risk. How much longer do you see that trend continuing? Yeah, you know, it's a great point. In fact, coming into the year, a lot of investors were underweight. We saw a lot of those fund manager surveys showing uh, cash at the highest levels we've seen in recent history. And in fact, the probability of recession was much higher coming into the year. We've slowly seen that come down as well. All of that lends itself to better risk appetite broadly. Um, investors were very underweight in some of the technology growth parts of the market, and we're seeing that 
rebound first. Um, we do think that the appetite now, not only from the equity space, but also the bond space, keep in mind last year was the worst year on record for balanced investors. If you had a 60-40 portfolio, if you had exposure to equities and bonds, um, this was the first time in a long time you did pretty badly in both. So I think the appetite now, uh, we're seeing rebounds and potential uh, for price appreciation, not only in the equity side, but on the bond side as well. So we do think that that will have some legs. And in fact, when you look at the technicals, uh, S&P 500 still very much above 200-day moving average. Same with the NASDAQ and the Dow. And in fact, um, in, in the bond space, right. we're up about 4 or 5% as well. Yeah, NASDAQ 100 also doubling the S&P so far this year. So a lot of appetite for risk. Peter and Mona, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate the Thanks, insight Frank. as always. Thanks, Frank. All right, as we head to break, take a look at shares of Airbnb. That stock on the move after reporting. We're going to bring you details from that quarter. That's coming up next. And just know, we're just getting started here on the CNBC special, Taking Stock. Stay with us. Coming up, eyeing the CPI. Everything you need to know about today's number. Plus, come fly with me. Airbnb, TripAdvisor, and the eternal dream of being somewhere else. And AI on the table, the tech that gets more complex every day. There's just thousands and thousands of issues here. When Taking Stock returns on CNBC. All right, welcome back to Taking Stock. That hotter-than-expected CPI number not doing much to dampen these travel stocks. We're talking Marriott, TripAdvisor, and Airbnb all reporting today, all of them in the green. So are there signs out there of an eventual slowdown in the consumer's post-COVID, YOLO, FOMO travel spending? Seema Modi, she joins us now to break it all down. So Seema, any signs of a slowdown? Not yet, Frank. A softening economy is not stopping travelers from spending on vacations and trips. Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky on the earnings call just now talking about the strength in demand in the first quarter of the year at an optimistic earnings outlook for 2023. And this, as TripAdvisor reported, a triple-digit increase in tours as travelers look to spend more on experiences like cooking classes and photography lessons. That stock up about 10% after hours. But there are signs that the work-from-home tailwind is starting to fade with average daily rates coming down. CEO Peter Kern at Expedia telling CNBC on Friday its home rental platform, Verbo, has been, quote, very strong, but hotels have been making up ground as people go back to resorts and back to big cities. Now, during the pandemic, the cost to rent a home skyrocketed. However, this year, vacation rental rates are only expected to grow by 5.5%. That's a quarter of the 2022 growth rate we saw, that according to AirDNA. Now, hotels are still holding on to pricing power as business travel starts to rebound, Marriott reported that the average cost to check into a hotel has risen 21% year over year. And for luxury hotels, guests are paying $431 a night. That compares to $365 in 2019. Analysts say the speed at which hotel rates come down really hinges on the job story and if unemployment ticks up in the coming months. But there are signs that the consumer in Europe is trading down, Frank. Trivago revealing last week that European customers are shortening their stays and picking more cost-effective of options, looking for that two to three star hotel versus a four to five star hotel, Frank. Okay, so we're seeing a bit of a slowdown when it comes to Europe, but are travel companies benefiting from the China reopening or is it just really too soon to tell? 
Yeah, here's the story in, in China, Frank. So the fourth quarter, very weak market. However, preliminary trends for the first quarter of this year suggest that China reopening is starting to take hold. Marriott today on the call talking about how they're seeing huge demand in January thanks to the rebound uh, this year, visa restrictions relaxing, and of course the Chinese New Year. They're expecting revenue per available room in China to increase by 30% in 2023 compared to last year. Brian Chesky on the Airbnb Commerce call also talking about how he expects the cross-border travel to increase in the coming months. Remember, Airbnb, though, did exit China last year, so they're really banking on the outbound traveler as they return to broader Asia, Europe, and the U.S. All right, travel and leisure correspondent Seema Modi. That's not a bad gig, Seema. Seema Modi, thank you very much. Always great to see you. All right, check out Palantir, among the biggest stock winners today after reporting a surprise quarterly profit. But it's not just the results that are driving excitement. Up next, Dan Ives joins us to discuss what's behind that surge and what other companies could benefit. You don't want to miss this one. Stay with me. All right, welcome back to Taking Stock. Shares of Palantir just soaring today after the software company beat earnings expectations on both the top and the bottom line. The company also turning a profit for the first quarter in its history and expects to be profitable for the fiscal year. I spoke with CEO Alex Karp, and he told me some of the rosy outlook is due to Palantir's growing suite of AI applications and the growing demand for them across multiple industries. So the question now is, will the interest in all things artificial intelligence create new winners and new losers in the tech sector? Let's bring in Wedbush Securities Managing Director of Equity Research, Dan Ives. Long title, Dan Ives. I'm just going to call you an analyst legend. How about that one? <laughs> um, so first off, I want to show you a, a list of some stocks here on a board. Sure. Um, different AI stocks along with the BOTZ ETF. That's the Artificial Intelligence and Robotics ETF. Um, these stocks outperforming to various degrees today. We're showing them right now to the audience. How long do you see this outperformance continuing? I mean, look, this is an AI arms race that's happening. I think what you saw at Palantir, right place, right time, because we're talking $800 billion of spending that obviously this race is just starting. You look at Microsoft with Chat GPT. You're looking for pure play AI plays. That's where you look at C3, Soundhound, and some others in Palantir. And right now, investors, there's a scarcity. And mm-hmm. I think also there's going to be significant M&A in the space, both on the strategic as well as financial buyers. Yeah, Sumo Logic just taken off the market in a PE deal, right? And I think that's just tip of the iceberg. Because at the end of the day, Frank, there's just, there's just not many pure plays. And you look what's happened, this Game of Thrones battle between Microsoft, between Google. Look at Apple. That's sort of the quietly sitting there right now. I think everyone's trying to figure out who's going to be the winners. It's not just Redmond. And, and I think that's going to really be major consolidation. All right. When you say Redmond, you mean Microsoft. Uh, I want to circle back to Palantir. So, so much investor enthusiasm. Um, turning a profit, obviously a big deal three years earlier than expected. And this is a company that's going to be EBITDA profitable, EBITDA profitable this fiscal year as well. Alex Karp having a lot of confidence in that. Um, I spoke to him. He was really emphasizing the company's AI advantage on the earnings call as well. Let's just take a quick listen, Dan. The technologies we built that will allow you to do AI in private networks, institutions and enterprises, uh, have precursor technologies that will take other companies four or five years to build. For example, how do you do AI in a regulated context? So in that case, uh, Carp went on to talk about manufacturing, um, supply chain, healthcare as well, regulated industries. Um, what do you think about all this enthusiasm for Palantir? Before it was a bit of a black box. They were known for their government work, but it seemed like investors didn't really know what they did. Well, I think the black box nature of Palantir definitely was a rocky road coming out. 
And we've seen that the last few years. But finally, you're starting to see adults in the room, profitability. And I think also goes back to right place, right time. They could significantly benefit from this environment where enterprises want to spend on AI. There's just not many players. Palantir does have that secret sauce, and now it's expanding. And that's why last night, huge step forward for the Palantir store. But like I said, that's a, what I view as a top M&A candidate for a strategic buyer. All right. So you just touched on Apple a minute ago. Uh, we've also been talking about Amazon. When are they going to have an announcement? Just for FYI, I spoke to Carp. He said that they work with Amazon. He didn't want to say anything else beyond that. So who's next? Is it Apple? Is it Amazon to come out with something AI related? Will it be in search? Will it be in some other area? Look, I mean, clearly right now, in terms of top of the mound, it's Nadella and Microsoft because the chat GBT and what we've seen Look at Google last week. When you rush things, that was a black eye moment for Google in terms of what we saw with Bard. I believe Apple is going to have some significant AI announcements by potentially by this summer as they've been investing, I think, anywhere from 8 to $10 billion. Then Amazon. Jazzy's not just going to sit there watching from the sidelines. I, I could see them specifically navigating on the enterprise as well as consolidating and putting more of that into the consumer side. This is just starting. And I think that's why 2023, I don't view this as a quote-unquote hype cycle. This is real right. spending, and I think that's the difference versus other, we'll call, you know, what we've seen hype cycles over the last few years. So, Dan, I don't want to put you on the spot, but you have a lot more insight on this than a lot of our viewers do, and even I do. Um, when we're talking Apple and Amazon, what would be the AI function? Um, I mean, for Amazon, does it, they have a, obviously a huge hyperscaler business. Apple has a multifaceted business. But what would be the function that investors would see the benefit from of AI for either one of those companies? Yeah, I think for Apple, when you got two billion iOS devices, it's about trying to integrate AI more into the app store and more into the actual devices. When you look in the next iPhone and some, some next versions. I think more AI in the iPhone. Remember for Cupertino, it's all about that ecosystem. That could be a differentiator. When you look at Amazon, I think it's really the enterprise because right now Redmond, they hear those footsteps. That's going to be integrated more into Azure, I think, over time. And I think that will be the first place. And then, of course, the consumer. All right. Webb Bush's Dan Ives. Always appreciate Thanks it. For Thanks me. for being here, Dan. All right. The AI arms race is fully underway across the tech sector. But how are other companies adapting to the transition? And which ones stand to benefit from it? For an inside look, let's bring in David Steinberg, the co-founder and CEO of Zeta Global, which is a data-driven cloud marketing company. David, great to have you here today. Frank, great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. So a lot of us are just kind of catching on to this secular buzz around AI. You've been in this for years. Give us a sense. Is there a storyline or something that investors haven't been talking about or maybe we haven't even been talking about here on CNBC that people should really be paying attention to when it comes to AI? I think Dan got it right. It's the enterprise. Right now, we've entered what we're calling the golden age of artificial intelligence. And when you think about that, today, the vast majority of what I call the popularization of AI has been consumer-facing with ChatGPT. When you think about where the money is, it's where enterprises, in a time of great uncertainty from an economic perspective, are looking how do they continue to do things better, faster, and cheaper. And at Zeta and others, we're focused on AI at the core of our platform to help enterprises better run their businesses. All right, you're not the first person I heard say that AI is going to be deflationary, but can you give us some more specific examples? I heard Alex Karp talk about healthcare, manufacturing, and supply chain. How specifically can AI reduce costs long term? 
Well, Zeta, we're generally able to lower a company's marketing costs by 50%. That is totally in tune with our ability to use artificial intelligence to know who is most likely to buy your products, right? So 100 years ago, a guy founded a, a shopping company called Woolworths, right? And he made one of the greatest quotes in history was, I know that 50% of my marketing spend is a waste. I just don't know which half. What we're doing is using AI to know who is actively in market to buy products. That also works in healthcare. It works in automotive. It works in financial services. And if you think about where AI helps enterprises, business intelligence, marketing, supply chain are going to be mission critical functionalities for automation. So we're just showing a graphic with some of the companies that you're working for and some of those brands, some of the biggest in the world. We're talking Samsung, Haynes brand, just a number of them here, Volvo and BMW as well. So when we're talking about AI, um, there's a big buzz around it. But at the same time, we're hearing more and more that companies are actually reducing their IT spend. How does that all work together right now? When we see companies, <laughs> you're laughing, we're seeing companies trying to reduce their spend on IT, but I can't imagine that, you know, I don't want to get too much into your business, but AI can't just be cheap, at least not to start. You know, interestingly enough, Frank, it's a lot cheaper than the number of bodies people are currently throwing at a lot of these problems, right? So it started with everybody, you know, operating and trying to figure out how to lower costs on their labor by moving overseas. What we're seeing now is artificial intelligence, which can process trillions of data points in real time, is able to come up with real-time decisioning that no human could do. And one of the things we've really focused on at Zeta is putting together multiple point solutions into one platform, right? So you would need five to seven different vendors to do what we do. Each one of those vendors has their own SG&A, right. has their own overhead that we're able to take out. So, David, don't take this the wrong way. I don't like chatbots. I don't like automated systems at all. I'm like a lot of people. I get on the phone. I hear that automated system. I'm just like, operator, operator, operator. So tell me about the future when it comes to marketing, advertising, customer relations, when it comes to AI. How will AI improve that experience that has so many of us frustrated? Well, Frank, let's start by saying we don't do that uh, at Zeta. We're, no, I know. I know you don't do it, but I'm just giving you, I think that's the application that most of us are most familiar with. Yeah. I was just making a joke. I, I was teasing. But, but uh, the, the reality is that what our goal is, is to put products in front of our potential customers for our enterprise clients for the stuff they really want. We all spend so much time being inundated by products we don't care about, right? So for us, it's how do you create real world experiences in a digital ecosystem that, are, that make people happy. So it, it's, it's harder to do than it sounds because there's so much frustration with automation and so much of it starts with IVR systems like you talked about or other areas where people are frustrated and they just end up going operator, operator, operator. I think we've all done that. <laughs> yes. What, what we're trying to do is make it so you don't even have to call. We're trying to create a solution where you're getting the product and the experience that you want digitally in a way that can help our enterprise clients massively lower costs while helping consumers to get to the products and services they really would like to have. 
So, Dave, I'm going to put you on the spot just a little bit. We talked manufacturing, we talked supply chain, we talked healthcare. These are different areas. We've, we've heard a lot of people talk about AI disrupting, potentially improving. Can you give us like a, a sneaky one, an under-the-radar field, sector, area, where you see AI making a big transformation? So one of the places we're seeing it that nobody's talking about is business intelligence. The ability to use disparate points of data to make real world business decisions that today you would hire McKinsey to do, or you would hire Boston Consulting or BCG to do. That's gonna become more and more automated. The other thing that nobody talks about is AI is only as good as the data that it ingests. And so much of the narrative around AI today is it can do anything. It can only do stuff if it gets access to incredibly high quality data. We rolled out a new product called Chatbot Zeta, which ingests all of your personal reading and research when it creates the outputs for your open AI platform. So instead of having to get to know you in real time and perhaps be focused on what other people are doing, it takes your real world experiences and converts it into your AI outputs. Really? That's just an example of how real-time data can help AI do a better job. All right, so you got chatbot Zeta, but you don't make chatbots. Just to be clear to the audience, David Steinberg, co-founder and CEO of Zeta Global, we really appreciate you being here. Great insight. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're just past the bottom of the hour. Let's bring you up to speed of where the markets ended today. Stocks closing well off their lows of the day after this morning's hotter-than-expected CPI report. The Dow Dow down more than 150 points, breaking a two-day win streak. It had been down nearly 420 points at its low. The S&P virtually flat. And the Nasdaq managing to close the day higher, up just about a half a percent. Also checking where the futures stand right now. It's very thin trading, of course, at this hour. But here's an early look at the action right now. We're seeing futures in the red at this point across the board. All right, don't go anywhere. There's much more ahead on the CNBC special, Taking Stock. Stay with us. Coming up, and I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Find out which stocks are most searched for on CNBC. Plus, it's one of the most shorted stocks on the street. But someone up there likes Silvergate. And, oh, you shouldn't have. Love for money is in the air. Flower Power comes to CNBC when we return. All right, welcome back to Taking Stock. Check out some of today's top search tickers on CNBC.com. Plenty of macro focus today with the 10-year and the two-year yield both on that list, along with the S&P 500. As far as single stocks, Boeing and Ford are drawing some of the top interest. Here to talk about how investors should play those moves, Jeff Kilberg, founder and CEO of KKM Financial and, of course, a CNBC contributor. Jeff, always great to see you. Frank, my guy, happy Valentine's Day, pal. (laughs) Happy Valentine's Day. All right, let's kick things off with Ford. That stock slumping after halting F-150 production and shipments. Um, A lot of issues with their EV business. How would you approach that stock? Well, Frank, I want to be a buyer here. And yes, it was some uh, concerning news that they halted the F-150 Lightning. That's their EV. That's actually the linchpin. That's the foundation of all their EV goals and ambitions. And if you remember, Frank, 
Ford is talking about 600,000 EV units next year. And by 2026, they're going to be at 2 million units a year. If you think about Tesla, Tesla started their Model X in 2015, and they just got to 1.3 million last year. So high ambition, short-term setback. But if you look at technically, it did close under the 200-day moving average, but it's above the 50-day moving average. I consider this the essential name. You're familiar with the essential 40 portfolio. This is the name that's poised to move higher. I'm looking at $17, $18 as a short-term target once we kind of digest this halt in production due to the battery issues. Yeah, kind of hard to bet against the popularity of the F-150, electric or otherwise. All right, no next, doubt. check out shares of Boeing. That stock leading the Dow today after Air India announced a huge order for more than 200 aircraft, valued at $34 billion. Big deal there, Jeff. What do you think? Nothing but love here. This is another essential name. You think about Boeing, you just rewind a year ago, you know, it was at 200 and you know, $78 a year ago. Go back to March of 2019, it was trading 440. So here's a name, due to COVID, it's had a hard time really regaining its step. But today, I think President Biden talked about this order, this $44 billion order, is about 300 jets. That's gonna be spread across 44 states and about a million jobs. So this is a big deal. This is love right here, Frank. So <laughs> I'm looking at a price target to go back up to 278. I think technically it makes all the sense in the world to own this name as we really see the global economy come back online. I know we have some issues right. and some headwinds as we really try to understand travel coming out of China. Is China really going to be open? But at the end of the day, I think Boeing's coming back here and I want to own this name for the long haul as well as short term. All right. This one's going to be a bit of a challenge. Finally, last but certainly not least, the 10-year Treasury yield. That's one of the most searched tickers on CNBC. And in focus following today's CPI report, what are you thinking about the 10-year benchmark? Well, as you know, Frank, I cut my teeth trading 10-year futures in Chicago. So I feel I have a pretty good pulse on where we are seeing expectations. And I believe the bond market is correct. And it's interesting to see it tethered to 3.5%. So I think, yes, we are at the high end of the yield here at 375. We were just at 340 a couple of weeks ago. But it's been fascinating to see this 10-year yield move higher. And stocks correlate. Typically, they're inversely related when we see those rates go higher. But I think this is more a, fu a function of the fact that we don't believe the Fed. The Fed has been wrong for decades. <laughs> and just last fall, they were wrong on their transitory. So I think the fact that we've had seven consecutive months, that's a positive trend. So I think you have to be patient here and understand that rates will continue to calm down, specifically right. on the long end of the curve. If you look at the front end of the curve, that six-month bill popped over 5%. Maybe that's a bit of capitulation in the front end of the curve, signaling that this Fed pause is nearer than most investors think. All right, Jeff Kilberg. Always appreciate the insight. I see you with the pink tie on Valentine's Day. It I was try, noticed, trying, my friend. Frank, it was on. noticed. All right, coming Thank up, you, shares of Silvergate popping today after Citadel announces a 5.5% passive stake in the firm. What it means for the crypto bank and the asset class, that's just ahead. Stay with us. All right, welcome back. Citadel revealing a 5.5% stake in crypto bank Silvergate earlier today. Shares popping double digits. So is this the confirmation the crypto cohort needs to keep on running? To answer that question, let's bring in our Kate Rooney for much more on this story. Hey, Kate. Hey, Frank. Yeah, so a handful of funds have been dipping into Silvergate lately. It's certainly helping the shares of the crypto company today, but it still has a long way to go in recouping some of those recent losses. Let's start with a big one today, though. You mentioned it. Ken Griffin's Citadel Securities disclosing a 5.5% passive stake in the crypto-focused bank and lender. It's worth about $25 million. This was released in a 13G filing, meaning that it's a current holding versus the quarterly 13Fs that hedge funds usually file. Citadel says it's a market maker in the company's options, so it doesn't necessarily 
reflect a directional bet here on the crypto company. Susquehanna also reporting a 7.5% stake. It comes a couple of weeks after we got BlackRock saying that it increased its stake from 5.9% to just around 7% in January. That's according to its latest SEC filing. And then also State Street reported about a 9% passive stake earlier this month as well. Another big name on this trade, Frank, George Soros and the Soros Fund Management. That firm has 100,000 shares of put options, which gives investors the right to sell at a certain price in the future, but not the obligation to sell. So it's still unclear whether Soros management remains short Silvergate. It's also hard to judge whether these funds see the company as a long-term investment and really a vote of confidence like we talked about at the top there, or just an opportunity here for upside since the stock has been so volatile. Shares were up about 18% today. That is not unusual for this stock. It's really seen these double-digit swings every week since the beginning of this year, and there are plenty of people who are shorting this stock. It's been among the most shorted names out there. More than 70% of what they call the float or essentially the available shares out there are sold short. To put that in context, the average S&P stock sees about 5% of short interest. The company has had its share of issues this year. It reported a billion-dollar loss for the fourth quarter in the wake of FTX's bankruptcy. And Reuters also reported that federal prosecutors in Washington are probing Silvergate over its dealings with FTX and Alameda. Frank, back to you. Really an eye-popping number when it comes to shorting uh, Silvergate. 72% of the float is shorted. That's, a, that's incredible. Yeah. Uh, what effect has all this short selling had on other crypto-related stocks? It's interesting. So Silvergate is by far the most shorted stock, really, in, in the S&P for, for on most days. But crypto stocks in general have just seen massive short interest. So MicroStrategy is another one. It's seen more than 35% of the float short Coinbase has been up there as well, and then a lot of the crypto mining stocks. So the big effect is volatility and that these stocks don't really trade on fundamentals these days. You might see something like a small piece of news, a class action lawsuit, for example, being dismissed might send the stock up 20 percent in a day. And it appears as though it's news, but it's really people needing to cover those short positions. It also sets up the potential for a short squeeze. So that tends to add to some of the allure here. The price jumps and declines on the other side can be really exacerbated by some of the short interest. So it makes these stocks a little trickier, a little bit riskier, and means that they're a lot more volatile than even Bitcoin, which is seen as one of the most volatile volatile assets out there. So it sets up a lot of opportunity, but a lot of risk at the same time. You know, you're talking about Bitcoin. I know you're in touch with so many private equity companies, these companies that are now backing Silvergate. What's the perception of Solana now? Uh, It was kind of tied to Sam Bankman-Fried when this whole you know, debacle surrounding FTX unfolded. We're looking at a chart of Solana right now. Um, How is Solana viewed and how investable is it right now? Great question. So Solana was really closely tied to Sam Bankman-Fried's FTX. A lot of people within that network and Alameda especially had been sort of boosters of this. So after the FTX news, when that company went uh, bankrupt, it took a huge hit. But you're seeing some a bit of a recovery here. And it's, it's further out on the risk spectrum. So Bitcoin at this point is seen as a little bit more stable. Solana is a little bit more high risk, high reward, but also seen as, as riskier on the downside. As far as its, its investment thesis and kind of the allure for, for investors, they've seen it as more of a kind of computing pa- uh, platform and competitor to Ethereum. So that was sort of the bull case for a really long time. I think investors that I end up talking to, venture capital investors, see more risk than anything right now and say that they've got to prove it, right? These are 
are high growth, big bets in the future. But some of these platforms, Solana included, haven't really proved that they're the next big thing. Mm -hmm. It's seen really more of a, a speculative bet at this point. All right, Kate Rooney, as always, with your pulse on crypto. Thank you very much. Great to see you. Thanks, Frank. All right, 15 million. That's the amount of roses 1 800 Flowers expects to sell for this Valentine's Day. The Dow's in the red and investors might be blue, but we'll find out if 1 800 Flowers could do that. The CEO joins me next. Wasn't a great poem, but the CEO is going to be great. He joins us next. All right, welcome back to Taking Stock. To quote Miley Cyrus, I can buy myself flowers and I'm not the only one that feels that way. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. Uh, according to the National Retail Federation, Americans are expected to spend nearly $26 billion this Valentine's Day. Joining me now is Chris McCann, president and CEO of 1-800-Flowers.com, to see if he is smelling like a rose on this holiday. Great to have you here. Busy day for you. Well, we're sm- smelling lots of roses today, Frank, but I'm not going to sing for you either. <laughs> I totally get it. Uh, so right now, we're f- I'm flanked right now by some of your beautiful flowers. These are great flowers right now. So just give us a sense. Um, Valentine's Day this year coming just a few days after the Super Bowl. How does that impact demand? So many people spend on their Super Bowl parties. Are we seeing the same spending when it comes to flowers after the Super Bowl? Well, I think we're all very encouraged by the uh, stats you just reported from NRF, National Retail Federation, expecting $26 billion holiday. So I think we're p- certainly well positioned to get our fair share of that of that spend and that increase from year over year. Uh, you know, as we look at this holiday, you mentioned the Super Bowl. This is only the second time that the Super Bowl has been this close to the Valentine holiday. So it's something to get used to. I think it puts a little bit of a challenge on companies like like us the week before when the media is all Super Bowl, and that's all it is, 24 hours a day, hard to get through. And this is also a very late holiday. It's a male-dominated holiday, and I hate to say it, but we wait till the last minute as males. It's just, it must be our genetic code. <laughs> so it was like after the Super Bowl went off last night, the phones lit up, the web lit up, our chat sessions lit up, and it's been a great day so far. All right, so obviously a lot of last-minute flower buying. So what's the flower for this Valentine's Day? It seems like every year there's a different color or maybe a different flowers in vogue. This year, where are you seeing the biggest demand? Is it roses, like a traditional Valentine's Day, or are people branching out to different flowers? Right. All the time we see people branch out a little bit. I think we look at plants has been a big growing category for us. I know we have multiple Valentines in our lives. I sent my wife a beautiful orchid plant. I sent my oldest daughter a beautiful cactus garden. And then my youngest daughter, I sent her some fresh flowers. So we make sure we have different products to meet the different needs that we have based on that different Valentine relationship that we all have. But when you come to to uh, Valentine's Day, tradition takes hold. Red roses are the number one product. All right. So speaking of red roses, I want to talk to you about supply chain. We've heard a lot of CEOs talk about issues with supply chain. A lot of people don't realize that a lot of these flowers that people are giving out on Valentine's Day, they come from South America. They have to be flown here and then trucked and then moved in warehouses. A lot of different steps to get those flowers to your Valentine on Valentine's Day. What's the state of the supply chain right now for you? The supply chain has been great in the floral side of our business. 
you know, last year we saw some cost pressures when the, some air, air lift wasn't, the capacity wasn't there for it. But overall, as an industry, we've been doing, doing such a good job of working with the growers, whether they be domestic growers in California still, or as you point out, foreign growers like South America, to work with them to improve the infrastructure and the airlift and the cold chain management that we do. Whereas the cost of flowers really hasn't gone up in over 10 years. So when you look at what we charge a consumer at Valentine's Day for roses, it's the same as it's been for the last 10 years, even in this inflationary time right now. So, Chris, right now uh, we're looking at your stock chart. We're going to show your after hours stock chart right now. Your stock's actually up about 4% after hours. So I got to ask you, are these, is this up because people are thinking I got to buy some flowers last minute? And just I'm asking you seriously, if somebody's watching this, can they get flowers right now delivered? Is it possible? Well, first off, our stock price fluctuates throughout the day. I have no idea what moves it throughout the day, quite <laughs> frankly. We just keep focused on the long term and building a really good business. And I think that Valentine's Day is an important holiday for us in building that business and building the relationships we have with our customers. And we make sure that, you know, every place we can, it might be late now, but on the West Coast, we still got some time. We still have some daylight. If you need it, come to our site, put in the zip code. We'll tell you whether or not we can still get delivery made. All right. So last question before we let you go, Chris, we got to get out of here in a second. But I got to ask you, are there other holidays where you're selling a lot of flowers? Um, You mentioned that Valentine's Day is a male dominated holiday. Um, I worked in the Midwest. They have something called Sweetest Day out there where women sometimes buy flowers for men. But I don't think that's that popular. What's your next big event when it comes to selling flowers? Well, Sweetest Day is always a great day that takes place in October. So we love Sweetest Day, uh, especially with our food and our candy businesses. But the next big holiday for us really is tomorrow. It's birthdays and anniversaries and get wells. And that everyday business is what drives the core of our business. Right. All right, Chris, we got to leave it there. I'm sorry to cut you off, man. I got I'm going to need to go buy some flowers. Thanks for bringing these. All right. That does it for us. Shark Tank. It's coming up next. Thanks for watching. 